Hey everyone, welcome to The Negotiators, a production of Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm your host, Jen Williams. Last week, we covered innovative talks between Mexico and the United States over the Colorado River, one of the largest sources of water in North America. Both sides agreed to reduce water consumption, but they also found ways to help each other environmentally and financially. That deal addressed part of the resource scarcity problem. But climate change continued to make water shortage a dramatic issue for U.S. states bordering the Colorado River. In recent years, it became clear that they all had to agree to cuts in consumption and a reallocation of the supply. Now, negotiating those things is incredibly difficult. It touches on everything from politics to farming to economic growth to immigration and development. But this past May, an agreement was reached. With the help of the federal government, California, Arizona, and Nevada have struck a major deal to cut back on water usage in an effort to save the Colorado River and divert a water supply catastrophe. The federal government is very worried that if those reservoirs keep dropping, that they'll get so low that water won't be able to go through massive dams like the Hoover Dam, and that would basically choke off the water supply to the West. So to understand how the deal was reached, we worked with the terrific reporter Luke Runyon on this episode. He's been covering the Colorado River negotiations for National Public Radio member station KUNC, and he hosts a podcast all about the Colorado River called Thirst Gap. Luke interviewed some of the key negotiators. You'll hear from them in a few minutes. But first, just a few facts. All the state's rights over the Colorado River go back to an agreement in 1922 called the Colorado River Compact. The seven states are divided into two groups. First, the upper basin states, Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah. And then there are the lower basin states, Nevada, Arizona, and California. One important note is that the lower basin uses more water than the upper basin. Some 30 Native American tribes also own rights to the river, and they also took part in the talks. Okay, here's my conversation with Luke Runyon. So it really sort of kicked off last summer when you had the Bureau of Reclamation, which is the federal agency that manages large dams and water infrastructure in the West. When the commissioner for the Bureau of Reclamation went in front of a Senate committee and said, we need to reduce the amount of water in the Colorado River Basin, the use of of Colorado River water by a tremendous amount, and sort of laid that charge out to the states to say, Here's what our scientists are telling us is needed in order for this system to not completely crash. That is really kind of the trigger moment that starts off that latest round of negotiations. And that was in June of 2022. So over the course of the rest of that summer and into the fall, that was really where a lot of the state action took place. And if you separate the two different basins, so the upper basin states, they realize that really this charge is to the lower basin, particularly California, Arizona, and Nevada. And over the course of the winter, things had really broken down in terms of the relations among some of the states. If you could just break down for us, like, what are the main things specifically that they're negotiating? Yeah, so these latest agreements have all been based around the idea of reducing demand. And 
that can take many different forms. So for some states and for some users, it's come in the form of payments. So in the lower basin plan, part of the negotiation was over how much federal funding was going to be flowing to these states in order to make some of this reduction in demand possible. Um, and they ended up getting, you know, more than a billion dollars in federal funds to go towards some of these programs. And that can look right. like... And just to, sorry, just to clarify, like, we're talking about payments. We're talking about, like, if a farmer is going to use less water, they're going to potentially be able to, what, plant less? And so they need some money to help offset that? Like, what, like, is the money... Is it like for new irrigation systems? Is it all of those things? It can be all of those things. In the like emergency short term, a lot of them are just direct payments to make a farmer whole for a reduction in their ability to produce. Like subsidizing them for using less water. Okay, cool. Yes. So you talk to a lot of the key players. First, since you're in Colorado, can you tell me about Colorado's main negotiator and, you know, what her strategy has been, what she was hoping to get from the talks? Just maybe start there. Sure. So Colorado's principal is a woman named Becky Mitchell. I am Colorado's representative on the Upper Colorado River Commission. She used to be the head of the state's top water policy board, but just very recently the state made a position that is, you know, kind of chief Colorado River water negotiator for the state, and she got that job. Realizing that you really need somebody at the state level whose sole focus is negotiating on the river. And she's kind of an interesting character. I think it was called Punch Me in the Face Becky. My style has been pretty direct. You know, she's a woman, which is rare in a lot of these negotiations. You know, even on the river, there's still a lot of like, it's the old white men crowd. Pretty much the majority of my life has been upsetting the norm. And two, you know, she's representing Colorado, which in the upper basin is a significant user of Colorado River water. Lately, you know, a lot of her talking points have been around acknowledging that climate change is real, which I think is something that maybe people would take for granted in 2023, but is still not the case when you're talking about some of these more conservative states in the Colorado River Basin. When it comes to leaders from Arizona and Utah and Wyoming, not everyone is starting from the same basis of like, can we at least all agree that climate change is real, that it's human caused, that it's having specific effects on this river system that we're reliant on? And so that's been a huge point of hers because I think for her, she sees that other things will follow from that acknowledgement. Then at least from there, we can start talking about, okay, well, if there's less water, then we also have to use less water because it's physically not there. And so that's been, I think, a big focus of hers in some of these talks. One of her other big points is that she thinks the lower basin states need to do more to reduce their water consumption. We've really got to start having the tough conversations on the 1.2 to 1.5 million cut in the lower basin. We have to have those discussions now. And what does that shortage look like? So last summer, the federal government was hoping the Colorado River Basin states could figure out how to use two to four million acre feet less water per year. Now, most people aren't used to measuring things in acre feet, but it is a ton of water. 
two to four million acre feet just for perspective. The upper end of that range, four million acre feet, that's about how much water the states of Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah combined use from the river each year. So it's a huge volume. And since the lower basin states end up using more water, Becky feels like it's their responsibility to come up with the majority of that reduction. And so she's pretty tough on the lower basin. We've seen that a few times where we've been given a deadline. The upper basin's always met the deadlines. But I think where there's been a seven-state consensus needed, we haven't been able to get there. And I think that's the benefit that we have in the upper basin is that we're managed. We're managed by Mother Nature. And she's far stronger than the federal government or any lower basin state or anything. And this all really came to a head at a meeting in January among the seven Colorado River Basin states. Six of the states had a proposal and were basically up against California. That was an incredibly rough moment for me personally. More about the drama of that January meeting after the break. Welcome back to The Negotiators, a production of Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm Jen Williams. Before the break, reporter Luke Runyon was telling us about the latest round of U.S.-Colorado River talks. Becky Mitchell, the state of Colorado's negotiator, was beginning to share her perspective on a meeting of the seven basin states in January. That was an incredibly rough moment for me personally. And part of the reason is because you, we wanted to be able to come together. And I think there are some rough components. I understood California's perspective on that. We tried. It was really a try. We have always known that California and Arizona have to figure that out. The 1.2 to 1.5 million cut. We want to support them in that process. It was rough. I'm not going to lie. It was a hard emotional thing for me because I want to come in this together. I want us to be seven state leaders together. Sometimes that's not possible. That was one of the cases that it wasn't possible. So you also talked a lot to California's main negotiator. Yes. His name's J.B. Hamby, and he's in his late 20s. I've kind of colloquially called him like the Doogie Hauser of Colorado River politics, for those maybe too young to get to get the reference. Um, but, you know, he's relatively new into this job. And then I came in in mid-January, and then my very first Basin State meeting, and, you know, hanging out in Las Vegas. And that seemed to be an okay meeting, trying to get caught up on things. But then a few weeks later in Colorado, very different story. What happened at that point was basically walking into a baked cake. He comes from a long line of Southern California farmers in this area called the Imperial Valley in Southern California, which sits right on the border between the U.S. and Mexico. And he was elected to the board that runs what's called the Imperial Irrigation District, which is the single largest user of Colorado River water in the entire basin. And so that's where he's coming from. But now he is the representative for the entire state of California. The other states had sort of coordinated together on coming up with an approach that was going to disproportionately hit California and Mexico very hard. 
we thought we were going into a meeting in which we were going to collaborate and try to come up with a consensus approach. And unfortunately, what we were posed with was signing on to something that was going to absolutely slam our state or go on our own. So after many attempts to try to work with our colleagues there, we ultimately said, you know what, this isn't going to work. We parted ways uh, in an amicable way at that point. And so that's where we ended up when I first arrived on the scene, which was a real low point. And I think some of his strategy on like a personal level has been to just get to know all of the other Colorado River Basin principals as people first. After uh, we closed out that meeting in Colorado, basically closed the meeting. I said, I think we're done here. Unfortunately, I don't think we are in a position to sign on. I, I think that's it from us. And so we all kind of closed up the meeting. Everyone packs up their stuff, shuffling around, chit-chatting. And then as sort of our California group is slowly, you know, heading for the door out the hotel door, Tom Bishotsky, the principal governor's representative from Arizona, comes in, taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, you know, I'd love to get together and, and have lunch sometime, maybe meet halfway in Yuma or something. I said, hey, sounds good to me. And we did it. So that was good. I think some of his strategy was just like, let's get to know each other as people. And then some of these agreements can flow from that. Rather than starting with like, oh, you're the principal for Arizona, you know, we should talk about the river constantly. We had almost no discussion about the river. It was just getting to personally get acquainted with each other. Backgrounds, oh. family. That's interesting that like the river wasn't the focus of the conversation. It was really just like, let's get to know each other like colleagues. That's yeah. In order to be colleagues, you have to be collegial and a little bit friendly. I would say on a professional level, everyone who's in these rooms is trying to guard their state's interest. And that's the same for California, trying to ensure that they're not feeling more of the burden than anyone else. And then there were small discussions between some of the lower basin principals just to talk and see, can we start to talk? And, and so I said, absolutely. And so start at a high level and then that got to be, well, how about let's meet in person? You know, first it was on, you know, online webinars and then it got small little settings and then got to be in person. How about let's meet, you know, Vegas or let's meet in Phoenix or let's meet in Burbank and one meeting after the next and, you know, along a lot of them just sitting and talking talking about where you know we were at where we we're trying to go trying to coordinate regarding coming up with a plan and after just having some pretty informal respectful a lot of trust because it was a small group of people just thinking openly and talking out loud uh, without fear of somebody's base getting angry at them ultimately over time we started to put different numbers together and come up with different opportunities that came as a result of the federal funding and then sort of pieced all the puzzle pieces together and reached out to people outside of those meetings and started to come up with the, the bare bones of a plan. Then at that point, start to build on, bring in some of our additional, you know, our agencies and other constituents and tribes who are part of this whole conversation or needed to be in order to you know, count to what we came up with, which was a plan to generate 3 million acre feet of water from now until the end of the current guidelines. What was the role of the tribes in this most recent agreement? So across the basin, you have 30 federally recognized tribes. And then within that group of tribal nations, you have some tribes that are heavily reliant on Colorado River water. And then 
you also have a disparity among those tribes in tribes that have had their water rights from the river quantified, settled, and they're actually using that water. A lot of tribes have water that exists on paper that has never actually been put to use, that has never been fully quantified, that they're not using right now. And so that's another kind of like distinction between some of these tribes. I imagine, too, like there's a disparity in addition, just in in terms of like the economic and political power of various tribes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you have some tribes that are kind of more power players than others in, in the basin. And a lot of it has to do with who's using that water already. So you have tribes like the Colorado River Indian tribes, which is on the border between California and Arizona, large agricultural user of Colorado River water. They've been a part of agreements in the past because they have the water. So say, you know, if the focus of the negotiation is we need to leave more water in Lake Mead. We need to find that water in the system. You start looking at where those pockets of large water use are and how can you go about incentivizing people to leave that water in the reservoir. And sometimes that's a tribal use that, you know, could be the Colorado River Indian tribes. Or it could be uh, a tribe like the Gila River Indian community, which is south of the Phoenix metro area, another large agricultural user of Colorado River water. And they've been party to more negotiated agreements recently because they have the water to be part of the solution. And so that was the case in this latest lower basin plan where some of that federal incentive money is going to be going towards the Gila River Indian community in order for them to use less water. Sure. Okay. I want to talk about the Gila River Indian community in Arizona that you mentioned. It seems like from the outside that this guy, Stephen Rowe Lewis, played a pretty big role in these negotiations. Tell us a little bit about him and what's his deal and, and what was his role here? Yeah, so Stephen Rowe Lewis, he's the governor of the Gila River Indian community, and he's the son of a former governor of the Gila River Indian community, who was also highly influential when it came to water politicking in the state of Arizona and in the Colorado River Basin. His father was basically responsible for negotiating the tribe's water rights settlement, which at the time was, you know, one of the largest water rights settlements probably that the country has ever seen when it came uh, to tribal nations. So he had huge shoes to fill in terms of, you know, taking the same role that his father had. But he's become a really strong voice for tribal inclusion in some of these talks and has become a really prominent player, not just in this latest agreement, but in the past several ones. Um, kind of the way that water managers and the even the federal government were looking at tribes in the Southwest were looking at them as a problem to fix. And he's saying, don't look at tribes as a problem, look at us as part of the solution. We had to be at the table in Arizona. Not only did we have a large volume of water that we could contribute, to conservation, we were also the only tribe facing actual cuts to our supplies. That would be a second taking of our water in violation of federal law. And I'm proud to say that we were good partners that to, and we developed those relationships within Arizona. All basin tribes need to be at the table. Now as we develop a post-2026 plan, it's no longer acceptable 
for the United States to meet with seven basin states separately and then come to basin tribes after the fact with a post hoc explanation or rationalization of what was discussed or even worse, what was decided. This new inclusion plan should be done as soon as possible so it can be used as we start the post-2026 process. So I'm wondering, you know, in terms of the negotiations and the deal that was reached, this recent deal, do you think that California came out better than the other states that were negotiating? Was it fairly equal? Were there winners and losers? You know, it's hard to say anybody was the loser when you have more than a billion dollars in federal funds that are coming through. So that was the huge carrot um, being provided by the federal government in order to get this latest deal over the finish line. I do think California and Arizona are giving up something in order to make this deal possible, which I think the folks in California would say, we didn't have to. Legally, we have the water rights. We have the kind of more senior legal standing on the river. We didn't have to participate. Now, I think you could talk to plenty of other people who would say, like, California couldn't get away with that. They couldn't get away politically with not participating with kind of like retreating into their more senior position on the river and not having to, to give something up. What are the next steps from here, right? So you have this agreement, this like temporary agreement, uh, you said for three years. What's the next step here? Well, the reason why they went for this three-year time horizon is because the current guidelines for the river's management expire in 2026. These were agreed to in 2007. They basically lasted for 20 years. And that's going to be the focus of the next three years is coming up with this longer term negotiated agreement. And again, the overarching problem is this reducing water demand in the Colorado River Basin. The number that we need, you know, in terms of like how much water we actually need to reduce, I think varies a little bit depending on who you're talking to, but it's going to be a tremendous volume of water that needs to be reduced in order for the basin to be on like a more sustainable path. More generally from your perspective here, you know, you've been covering the Colorado Basin for a while. What are some of the takeaways that you've seen throughout your reporting on this issue? One thing that I've really tried to get across in my storytelling and in my reporting is just how intimately connected this whole system is. I think it can be really easy for people to look into their own backyard and their own community and feel like what's playing out in terms of water in my little pocket of the Colorado River Basin isn't connected to the, the broader whole. And I think that that's how a lot of coverage of the river took place over a, a long period of time. You know, people, you would look at what's playing out when it comes to water in Arizona or in Colorado, but there wasn't a ton of connections being made of, you know, the decisions or the weather that's playing out in one part of the basin has a direct connection to what's playing out in a different part of the basin. The, you know, these sort of decisions can ripple throughout the whole Colorado River Basin in a way that isn't apparent to maybe the layperson, but that's what I've really tried to get across is how intimately connected the whole basin really is. 
that's such an important point. So just to kind of reiterate that and as a foreign policy podcast, I feel like that's a lesson that's really important and can be applied even, you know, at the international level, right? Like we have the issue of a, of a river getting, you know, having less water is something that's not just exclusive to the American Southwest, right? So we have a lot of issues that are crossing international boundaries. Yeah, and covering a watershed as a beat is not immediately intuitive. Right. <laughs> I think like what you're saying is like, it's really easy to be like, oh, I cover, you know, whatever issue in this country. It's like, well, you know, at least for this particular issue, you you have to cover it at a watershed scale in order for it to make sense. Otherwise, you're missing a huge piece of the story, I think. Thank you so much, Luke. This was incredibly informative. I really appreciate you taking all of the time to do all of this. And thanks for having me. This is great. That was Luke Runyon, an environmental journalist based in Grand Junction, Colorado. He's now the co-director of The Water Desk, an independent water journalism initiative at the University of Colorado Boulder. Now, Luke talked about what was in the final deal, but let's go over it here for just a bit. The lower basin states, that's Arizona, California, and Nevada, agreed to take less water from the river, reducing their use by 13%. In exchange, the federal government agreed to pay these three states, as well as Native American tribes within them, $1.2 billion. A pretty big carrot from the feds. This decrease amounts to using 3 million acre-feet less water over the next three years. It's a big reduction, more than any other existing agreement. But it's still much less than what the federal government was hoping for. They wanted closer to a 2 to 4 million acre-feet reduction every year. Plus, this recent agreement is only temporary. It lasts till 2026, when they hope to sign a more permanent deal. So negotiators have their work cut out for them, both a longer agreement by 2026 and, likely, bigger cuts in water use. The Negotiators is a partnership between Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. Our production team includes Rob Sachs, Ashley Westerman, Rosie Julin, Claudia Tatey, Jafit Weeks, Jigar Mehta, Amjad Atala, and Dan Efron. Laura Rosprautellum is the show's senior producer. Thanks to Nella Farhidayat, Govinda Clayton, and James Wally for helping create the show. Foreign Policy is a magazine of news and ideas from around the world. And we encourage you to subscribe. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation, where the most urgent issues of our time are discussed and debated. Tune in at dohadebates.com. Next week on the podcast... An Australian mediator lands in Jerusalem in 2001 during one of the worst rounds of fighting in decades between Palestinians and Israelis and tries to nudge the two sides towards a peace deal. It's at this point that the violence just begins to escalate. Israel appears to have a freer hand to do whatever it wants to do and the Palestinian frequency and intensity of attacks inside Israel begin to increase. So I could not have arrived at a worst possible time in that particular context. That's next week on The Negotiators. I'm Jen Williams.